Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Roots and Roots show with your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you history and music from the Black American diaspora. Greg and his guest's goal is to root the show's information in your psyche, providing you the roots to expand knowledge within your community. Now, here's your host, Greg Rashid. Well, I want to say good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you're listening to the program. This is Greg Rashid with another edition of the Root and Root Show. And a lot of people listen at their convenience all over the world. I got found out I got um, new fans listening in Belgium now, but all over the world, be it in my hometown in Thailand, be it in Australia, Britain, um, all over the place, but of course the U.S. And those of you who don't listen at the convenience and listen on Sundays in Colorado, you're listening on khsdenver.com, created by the one and only the great Henry Archuleta. And I want to say hi to all my friends out there in the Colorado region. Hope everyone's doing well out there and staying warm and staying safe. And I'm just, you know, I am just so honored, you know, to start the season off of this show. You know, the first show I did a couple of weeks ago was with uh, the great historian Gerald Horn, and that was one home run. But now I'm so happy and honored to have another home run, another esteemed, one of the premier historians, not so much Negro League historian or baseball historian, but just a historian in general. And I'm just honored to have on here today the one and only Phil S. Dixon. Are you there, Phil? I am here. All right, man. I, and I got to tell my listeners that uh, we were supposed to do this a year ago, but this whole pandemic mess and all this delayed this. But like you know, like we say, it's better late than never. And I'm just so I'm just honored to have you on. I've been wanting to talk to you. I got your book, The Pictorial History of the Negro Leagues, way back when, and I just love your stuff. I love your tweets. I just everything you've done over the years. And I'm just like, um, it's like Christmas for me right now to have you on here. So I'm just honored to have you here. And listeners, if you if you want to call in and talk to this great historian, the number here is 563-999-3479. Again, 563-999-3479. And Phil, I just want to first I'll ask you, before we get into your new book, The uh, Dizzy and Daffy Barnstorming Tour, I want you to reflect on you know, Henry Aaron, who just passed a week ago, because I know you've met him and you have a number of things you want to say about him. So I just want your reflections on him so my listeners can hear that. Well, you know, a lot of things I can say about Henry Aaron. I had the chance to, to meet him twice in my life. Uh, the first time was at an old-timers game back in 89 when we dedicated the monument at Satchel Page's gravesite. I was uh, involved with that and uh, helped put the old-timers game together with the Kansas City Royals, and we were able to get, you know, Hank Aaron and other stars. You know, Ernie Banks was there. But, you know, we even had Lou Boudreaux, um, you know, uh, oh, Satchel's first manager there. So uh, it, it was a nice event. I had a chance to meet him there and talk to him about, you know, his days at Indianapolis. This is talking about 89. And, of course, uh, in 20, I guess it would have been 
2015, uh, he came back for a, a uh, it was kind of like, uh, I guess, the uh, 25th or was it the 30th? I'm trying to think which which anniversary it was for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and he came back, and I was able to talk to him then again. And what's interesting is uh, I, I wanted to get a picture signed for my son, and uh, my wife went right. up to him, and he said, look, he said, if I start signing for you, a lot of people are going to want autographs. He said, so just come back after I speak. So after he spoke, my wife went back there, and they were stopping people from going back there. And he, Hank saw her. He said, oh, no, you let her in. And he let my wife oh, wow, in. Man. And we got the picture. But it, uh, And he came and took a picture with me on top of it. So um, uh, very warm feelings about this guy. But, you know, I was a, a senior in high school when he hit the home run uh, to surpass Babe Ruth. And I don't know, you know, what baseball fans, who were baseball fans back then, but if you were a baseball fan, you can remember right where you were when he hit that home run. I know exactly right. where I was when he hit I that home too. run. That's how monumental it was. And so, uh, you know, so many uh, great things have been said about Hank. I don't know if I can add any more, but just God bless, bless uh, Hank Aaron. And uh, he was a true American baseball history a hero and a true American. That's right. That's the thing. And I just, you know, am so honored that, you know, to have, you know, to have him in our midst. And just as you're saying, he was more than a, he wasn't a baseball hero. He was just an American hero, just a, a world hero. And just the classiest of guys, just really a classy guy representing, you know, just the Negro Leagues baseball, just himself, just an amazing fellow, you know, as you are too, just, you know, just, what you represent, you know, your knowledge, what you've done over the years is just, it's just fantastic. And I just want to ask you, how did you start? Tell my listeners how you started just collecting and getting interested in the Negro League. Uh, it all started with baseball cards, believe it or not. Um, I was a baseball card collector. Actually, I always tell people I started collecting Beatles cards uh, back in 1964. And I made the mistake of I taking it. <laughs> okay, then you know what? You're right there with me there. And I made, yeah. uh, see, I made the mistake of taking mine to school. And the teacher said, these aren't collectibles. These are toys. And she took my Beatles cards. So when I go back to the store, the only thing left is baseball cards. And so I started oh, picking up cards in 1964. And, you know, by the time I was uh, 19 years old, I had over 100,000 baseball cards. And uh, at that time, I doubt if there were very few black collectors who had as many cards as I did or as much knowledge. And I learned a lot of my baseball history, my early baseball history, off the backs of those cards. And not only did I have the tops, you know, I had the Fleer cards. I had all the Fleer, you know, like the great series that they put out, you know, the baseball greats. So I knew about the baseball greats. But one thing I realized as I got older into high school, as I would hear people talk about the Negro Leagues, and I knew nothing about the Negro Leagues, but I knew a lot of baseball. And so that was the beginning, and uh, I think 1980, uh, I met Kel Ray Moffle. Now, I had known other baseball players across the alley from me in Kansas City, Kansas, where I grew up in the same hundred block. I could look out my window and see this house was Eddie Dwight who had played for the oh, Kansas City Monarchs. 
So he lived across, uh, across, right across the alley from me. So I knew names, and I used to hear people talk. But the first person I really got a chance to talk to an interview was in 1980. It was a gentleman by the name of Carol Ray Mothel. And he had played for the Monarchs in the 1920s. And, and that kind of started it all. And, uh, you know, I've been working on this topic ever since, nonstop. And I always tell people, they said, you know, the books you write, why do you write these books? Well, I always write the books that I wished I would have been able to read when I was coming along. And I'm so glad that you've written these books, that you've been so dedicated. And I want to ask you, do you still have those 100,000 or more baseball cards? No, I don't, but I got a pretty ah. good collection. <laughs> I got a pretty good collection. Over the years, I you know, I sold so many cards and uh, you know, uh I would I you know, this might sound funny. I would make deals back in the 70s that just would seem crazy to uh, white historians and white baseball card collectors like one time I was up in Colorado in Denver and I had some 1933 Gaudi gum cards and this guy oh, had man. He he had an autograph of Buck Leonard on a postcard and Judy Johnson. And so I wanted those so bad that I traded him 15 of those Gaudi, 1933 Gaudi cards. They were, and my stuff I kept in very good condition, right? And, it, and right. I got those postcards of Judy Johnson and Buck Leonard. Now, that probably sounds like the most lopsided deal in card collecting history. <laughs> but here's the thing. That was 1978, and so I'm already I'm already wanting this information, but I had to cut deals to get it. So I had something they wanted, they had something I wanted. For me, it turned out very well. Matter of fact, uh, years later, I went to Colorado and I asked about that guy uh, who I traded those cards to. They said, "Well, he got burned out. He just quit collecting." But here I am today, oh still God. working. <laughs> See, that's the thing. You know, that's it. I you know, we had similar experiences as I listened to you because I I sold a lot of cars to pay my way through college. And I you know, and I have I don't have a big collection, but I do have some good stuff. I still I still have some stuff and I'm just so happy to have that. And before we talk about your book, and one thing, speaking of car collections, this is something and I regret I no longer have the letters. Because I, when I was in college, I used to write Cool Papa Bell, James Cool Papa Bell. Sure, sure. And, and he warned, you know, he told me, because I was thinking of animal cars I had, and he autographed, and he said, well, don't buy any more of these cars. And he started telling me about how there were all these Negro League cars, and I'm talking about the mid-'70s, that these dealers had that the Negro Leaguers who were living at the time and their families, they weren't getting any of the profit. They were using these guys. Wow. And I'm yeah. hoping, and ever since then, I've always been hesitant to buy any cars that, you know, that say Negro Leagues and all, because I just always think, I always hear a oh, cool Papa Bell's voice in my head. It's like, no, I can't. I want to. But now I just found out through reading your latest book that you have a set of cards that I got to get now. Because I didn't know this. Yeah, uh, 1987. Actually, Dang, how did I miss that? <laughs> it was the first set of baseball cards ever produced on the Negro Leagues by, actually the first set of baseball cards in American history that were produced by a black person. 
I didn't but, even, I, I'm stunned. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, and but I've it all comes stuff out over of, the years and didn't know that. Wow. Man. Yeah. Being a car collector, that's where it all comes from. So cards, you know, to me, were important. This the baseball card card thing, and I I felt that the images of the players should be on cards. And so I work with people like Coop Papa Bell. Now I will tell you this: I used to go down to Coop Papa Bell's house. I I lived in Kansas City. Oh man! And I would go sometime on a Saturday, and I just spend the day with him. I take my tape recorder, or sometimes I wouldn't take my tape recorder. We just I just go down there and talk, and we talk baseball. I make notes, that kind of thing about players. I was I was interested in history. I was interested in. But then right. I would see collectors come to his house, and these were non-African-American collectors. I remember one Saturday a guy came over with a box of chicken and a pint of liquor and oh, a dozen man. baseball bats for Coop Papa Bill to sign. So, so I saw a lot of abuse in my day. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that hurts my heart to hear that. But it, it's, it's, it just goes on. So many folks have been mis our folks have been, you know, just used, taken advantage of, and just, and that's why, it, you know, in all your books, especially the latest one, and I want to talk about it, and in the book is called The Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime. And listeners, you can call in, by the way, at 563-999-3479. I'm talking with Phil S. Dixon. Well, the thing you talk about at the beginning of the book that I was really glad that you said is about how there are there's been a proliferation of Negro League books, articles in the past number of years. But you talk about the fact that a lot of these folks are not thorough as far as their research. Yep. And that they they're just skimping at our history. Because a lot of these folks are, you know, we're talking about basically some white historians out there, and I'm not trying to discourage some of them, but they're lacking as far as understanding and have empathy for what went on. And I want you to talk about that. Yeah, having that understanding makes a big difference because, yeah, see, see, and that's one of the issues I have with the statistics that they're, they're talking about releasing. You know, there are right. some problems, and we can talk about that too. But I just, I just feel like the black experience if you read a lot of these books, actually it minimizes the African-American experience in this country, and it doesn't tell the story in a way that it has power, and the power for a young person to read that and be motivated to go out and basically face what he's going to face in the world. And and uh, those are the kind of books that, like I said, I I wish I would have read more of, but the ones I got my hands on certainly helped me to uh, be prepared for what I might face. And so uh, it's, more, it's more than just, you know, this ball player was great. You know, even if you take Hank Aaron, the one we just talked about just a moment ago. Right. You know, Hank Aaron, you know, when he, when he originally signed, he went to Eclair, right, Wisconsin, right? So Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron is in Eclair, and uh, Hank Aaron, I think in that first year, he batted 336. Then he goes to the Sally League in 53. So we have 52-53, the Sally League. And there's only probably about four or five black players in the whole league, right? And he bats over 300 Maybe the again. whole state. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, just think about this. They were under pressure. Just imagine if he had no pressure. 
just to be able to right. just go and play ball with no pressure, no racism, no oppression, you know, nobody questioning should you be here. If he batted over 300 in both those leagues, hey, maybe he was a 400 hitter. But but if you just look at the 300 and you don't take into consideration what they were facing when they went into these leagues, I think that you're minimizing their contributions uh, to what they achieved. Definitely. And do you ever get this, Phil? Did people ever say to you, and I know you've run into this because you've done so many lectures, does anyone ever say to you, like, hey, Phil, um, what if you lived at that time and you could see these guys? Do you ever get that? Say that, say that again. Ask, ask that question one more time. Do you ever get the uh, question like, well, wouldn't it be great if you lived at that time, Phil, and you could see these guys play? You, you know, uh, I get questions like that. I tell you what I get. I, I, I get it quite a bit. And it, it'll yeah. be people, and they think they're giving me a, com, a compliment. They'll yeah. say, oh, it's too bad that, that Josh Gibson and Satchel Page didn't get a chance to major, play in the major leagues. And, you know, I look at them, and I say, yeah, them and about 4,000 other black players. You know, That's right. But they, they, they think that only Satchel Page and Josh Gibson were good enough. I can name ball players you never heard of who would have been good enough. Uh, to play in the major leagues, and a lot of major leaguers I can name you who weren't good enough to beat a black team. So, and, right. and I write about those things extensively in my books. If you read my books, you'll see a lot of uh, games against uh, major league players and things like that that just kind of seep through, uh, much like I did in the Dizzy Dean Tour uh, book. Right, and you do a great job of that. And this, the funny thing, when I get that question, and I, you know, I really shocked someone I knew once, this white guy, because he was asking me, well, wouldn't you want to live at the time in the 30s with Satchel Page when he was pitching? And I told him, I told him, hell no. I don't want to go into Jim Crow. It's bad enough at this moment. I did not want to be around at that time. You, you know, know, and he could not understand that. He couldn't understand yeah, that. Excellent response. You know, Chet Brewer used to have a saying, he, he would say, those were the good old days, but I'd rather have these. That's right. That's the thing. And a lot of these, you know, I see a lot of these researchers, and I, and I always compliment researchers on one hand because, you know, if you're going to spend all your time looking at microfish, looking online, doing all this stuff, I mean, I, I salute you on one hand, but really you got to be, like we said earlier, thorough in your research and not look at these players, the men and the women, as just – doing this because, well, we'll just form our own league. We'll just do, you know, we'll do what we, you know, we just want to have our own league. We just want to play in different places because we can't, you know, we don't want to play in Yankee Stadium, so let's play here at a Greenleaf Field or something. And a lot of these folks do not understand the fact that this is, when you're talking about the Negro Leagues, and you say it in all your books that I've read, in your speeches I've heard, this is a political issue. And I've had people get mad at me when I say that Negro is political. They will jump on me in a minute, and I say it's a political issue. And it, and it still is. Yes, it is. Yes, sir. And, you know, to show you the oppression, and, you know, it, it would take me, you know, probably more than this interview. We'll have to do this again to really break this down. But, you know, when the major leagues, they were saying they were officially – 
recognizing the Negro Leagues as major leagues. <clears throat> right. Well, heck, be honest with you, in many cases, the Negro League needed to represent, recognize them as being a major league. But see, the That's way right. that our thinking is so twisted is that, you know, for many people, they're just now coming to the realization that these Negro League ball players were better than many of those ball players that were in the major leagues. And, and quite honestly, uh, years ago I was sitting with Coo Papa Bell, and we were just sitting down on a Saturday, and Coo Papa Bell told me, he said, the greatest ball players that ever lived, baseball players, were black. He said, but you've got to prove it. Yeah, that's it. That's the unfortunate thing. We got to prove it. And looking, you know, and I've gotten into, thanks to the pandemic, and I'm overdue doing this, but I've been getting into a lot of the, you know, online, all the old newspapers and discovering, mm-hmm. you know, just seeing some things I hadn't looked at in years. And, you you know, I know you notice this, that when these papers, be it the sporting news, some of the white papers, when they talk about the Negro Leagues, when they do talk about them, they call them, they always talk about the players as big leaguers. But they never call it organized baseball. They call it just baseball. He's a big league ball player. But they call what they were, you know, what they're playing in the American or National League at the time, organized baseball. And it's just a subtle way of just insulting, you know, the folks that were part of the Negro League. Mm-hmm. Well, well, one thing, uh, years ago, you know, I was interviewing an old guy. This was probably in the 80s. He was in his 90s. And uh, he was kind of mentoring me about how to approach this history, right? And he said, uh-huh. when you talk about major leagues, he said, don't ever use the word organized. And I asked him, why not? He said, well, he said, first of all, he said, what's the opposite of organized? And I said, unorganized. And he said, that's exactly what they want you to think of the Negro Leagues. So he said, eliminate that word organized when talking about the major leagues. And so that's what I've done over the years. Yeah, you have to do that. I mean, that's the thing. And before we get into your new book, we have a listener on the line. So I'm going to take this call right here and see what this person has to say. Yes. Are you there, caller? Are you there? Someone from 775 in Nevada, are you there? I guess they've gone to the bathroom. Okay. I guess they've gone to the bathroom. I don't know what happened there. But anyway, let's talk about, you know, something, you know, we got trolls on here too. And a lot of folks interested in hearing you, by the way, based on my Facebook and Twitter feeds and what some folks are saying. So I know they're out there listening and taking notes, but let's talk a little bit about before, well, actually, before we talk about the book, there's something you said, I listened to one of your lectures, and it's about the statistics that they're talking about right now with the Negro Leagues. And you made a great point, because you were a statistician, if I'm not mistaken, with the uh, Kansas City Royals at one time. That's correct. And Talk about, you know, I want you to talk about why you got to be careful with some of these stats that people are throwing out right now. Well, let me, let me give you a, a couple of things. 
first of all, uh, you know, a lot of the leagues that they're organizing have uh, teams out of Pittsburgh. So the Pittsburgh right. Crawfords are going to be in some of them, the Homestead Grays. By the way, the Grays, the Grays' greatest team, who I feel is the 1931 Homestead Grays, won't be included in these statistics. Uh, Josh hit 40 home runs that year, but it won't be included. And, of course, they wouldn't include all of those because if he hit it off a white pitcher, it doesn't count. So he's, they're only no. counting the ones he hit off a black pitcher. Even if the white pitcher was a major leaguer, it still don't count. But <laughs> anyway... If you take uh, the games that they're going to find in Pittsburgh, well, I know that the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette don't have at-bats. So when you're trying to figure out batting averages, how do you do that without at-bats? Right. And, and years ago, uh, John Hallway, who, you know, he was a pioneer in this whole Negro League research, and uh, I used to get in debates with John Hallway over the telephone because he would compete, uh, compute statistics and then just make up at-bats. And so what you're, ha what you're having now is the same thing is going on. Now, they, they wanted to debate with me, and they said that, hey, we can figure out the at-bats from looking at the box scores. So my challenge to them is give me 10 – I'll give you 10 games that I have the at-bats for. I will take away the at-bats, and then I want to see you recreate it correctly. And they can't do right. it. And so I know yeah. that. So, so uh, years uh, in 2009, I uh, released a book on the 1931 Homestead Grays, and basically, there's no batting average in it because you could not give that official total without just speculating, right? But I can tell you what how many doubles I found for a player, or how many home runs. That's how I know Josh hit 40. And, and uh, when I started the project, people were saying he had 72 that year. Of course, that wasn't true after I put it under a really uh, historical observation. But I can tell right. you, you know, how many doubles, how many triples that I was able to find. And I don't have to worry about those percentages. But if you try to make your statistics look like major league statistics and the information is not there, it's going to be some bad information that you're selling the public. And uh, if you look in any of my books, I challenge anyone to look in any of my books, you would never see a season's average or a lifetime batting average. And I hear speakers all the time talking, this person was, um, you know, whatever, three-something batting. They don't want to talk about somebody who was a 250, but they're going to talk about someone who was a three-something batting, lifetime batting average. But when they say that, uh, and if I'm in the room, you know, afterwards I let them know that those that information is incorrect. And can you prove it? And they usually can't. So no. uh, those are some of the problems with the statistics, and those are some. That, that's just one of the problems that I've been alerting people to, and um, and I'm going to challenge some of these totals when they come out based on this information. Yeah, I'm glad you're doing that because it's it's just you know it's like um, trying to create a dinosaur when you don't even know what it looks like, and you're just making <laughs> guesses and estimations. And I think I heard you say something once about. Well, you know, more or less to paraphrase you, in one of your speeches I heard, you know, you take someone like a, one of the worst hitters in the history of baseball, uh, Mario Mendoza, and his lifetime average is like two, 210 or something. Mm -hmm. But if you found, let's say all the stats were lost somehow, 
And then one day you find that Mary Medosa, in like 100 at bats, had 35. And this is the only stat you find. And that's 350. You think, God, this guy's a great hitter. Yeah. But you don't find the other 100 at bats where he doesn't get a hit at all. That's, that's true. And you know, I'm going to tell you, I, I first discovered that uh, when I was with the Kansas City Royals. Uh, I used to keep statistics, uh, and I would have this, I'd be sitting at the computer, I'd watch every play, put in every play, and at the end of the night, I would shoot the statistics back to New York, right? And, and so I would notice that at the beginning of the season, you know, maybe 20 games in, you might have a guy batting 380 or 360, oh, yeah. 320, sometimes 400. But at the end of the season, as the data comes in in a larger amount, this guy might be a 270 or 260 hitter. Right. And so what I realize is the smaller the sample size of box scores, depending on how well they did in that little small stamp sample, will give you big numbers. But does it really tell you what kind of player that ball player really was? And the answer is absolutely not. That's correct. That's it. And listeners, you can join the conversation. I'm talking with the one and only the great Phil S. Dixon. The number here is 563-999-3479-563-999-3479. I'm going to try this caller again. Maybe he will talk. He's in Nevada. Let me see. Okay. Let's see if this will come on. Are you there, caller? I cannot talk to you. Sorry. He can't talk to us. Okay. He can't talk. I guess he's just listening. Okay. <laughs> you know, he can't talk. So anyway, let's get All with right. your book here. The new book, uh, The Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime on Ro- um, Roman and Littlefield Press. And what inspired you to decide to write this book about Dizzy and Daffy Dean, and tell my listeners, especially some of the younger ones who may not even know who Dizzy and Daffy Dean were. Who are they? Well, in 1934, Dizzy and Daffy Dean, uh, actually at the beginning of the season, uh, Dizzy went into a general manager of the uh, St. Louis Cardinals, who at that time was Branch Rickey, and he told him that uh, him and his brother, who was a rookie pitcher, were going to win 20 games each that year. And um, and uh, Branch Rickey just kind of laughed at him. But long story short, uh, Dizzy ended up winning 30, and his brother won actually, uh, and his brother won 19. So they ended up winning with those games in the regular season, and then uh, the games that uh, they won in the world, actually World Series, which was four games, they ended up winning 52 games for the season. And so they were two of the greatest pitchers in America. And they kind of uh, usurped Babe Ruth for national attention. And at the end of the 34 World Series, they went on a barnstorming tour against four great African-American teams, the Kansas City Monarchs, the Philadelphia Stars, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and the New York Black Yankees. And in those four games, it gave me an opportunity to write about everything that I could ever dream of writing about because it occurred right in those that you know, two and a half weeks after the World Series. They had great coverage. 
I, you know, and you could see the racism in the coverage. Uh, the black ball players played excellent. Many times wearing old Dizzy Dean out, who was the greatest pitcher, and then you see the media explain it away. But you, they, they never would say that these were superior ball players. You know, uh, you just saw everything. Uh, the segregation. That you, I don't know where the black team stayed, but I can tell you what Dizzy Dean ate for breakfast. You know, in every hotel where he stayed. And uh, it just goes on and on and on. And what's interesting about that book is that typically I probably, um, on my hand, can't name three books that were written about white players pre-integration by black people. And since I was a baseball fan all of my life, I wanted to break that barrier as well. So I'm one of the few black guys who actually writes about white players. I never thought, Mike, you're right. (laughs) I never even thought about that. But you're correct. Yeah, you are the the man. My goodness. And and I'm working on another one right now. uh, But I try to bring out a lot of truth in those books. And so, uh, you know, uh, the media has been under a lot of scrutiny, you know, understand, You've been following the nationals, the national comments for the last four years, been under a lot of scrutiny about fake news. But fake news right. is not anything new. Oh, and no. uh, neither is uh, media that's flavored with Republican or Democratic uh, opinions. That's nothing new. In many cities, there were more than one daily newspaper, and some of them would be the Republican and some of them would be Democrat. And even when I toured around the country, even in small towns, I remember I was up in Bethany, Missouri. I'll just use them for example. Their newspaper is still called the Bethany Republican. And so you would have Republican and Democrat newspapers with the name Republican and Democrat on the paper. But people seem to think that, you know, like what happens at a Fox network now is something new. It's not new at all. It's been going on since we've had newspapers. And, Phil, I want you to, since I'm here right now, I'm leaving the country again soon, hopefully, to get out of here. But due to this pandemic, I've been stuck in Des Moines, Iowa. I want you to talk about, because I don't want, I want you to, you know, I want my listeners to buy your book. But talk about this Chapter 5 on Des Moines, Iowa, and the, the tour there, because that gives a perfect example of what happened and also what the media, how they didn't cover the black the black teams that they were playing. Oh yeah, Des Moines Des Moines is one of my favorite cities. Uh, of course, uh, one of my favorite players, Chet Brewer, grew up there. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, he grew up in Des Moines. Uh, are you familiar with Chet Brewer at all? Oh yes, sir. Oh yes, indeed. Oh yeah, I know. You know, th- thanks you know, to you over the years re- reading your stuff, you know, that got me looking into Chet back in you know back in the late eighties and all that. Oh, yeah, I yeah, know, you know, and I wish, you know, if it wasn't, they didn't have all this pandemic and everything locked down, I would right now, I would have been all, you know, the whole time I've been in Des Moines waiting to go back to Asia, I would have been in the libraries looking at all the Negro League history in there because they are in the old newspapers. Oh, yeah. Because I would love I, to get in there and look at Chet Brewer and the other folks. Yeah, Chet, Chet got his start there and uh, – uh, you know, one thing, I, and before I go talking about Des Moines, let me tell you something about Chet Brewer. You know, Chet Brewer, a lot of people, and I, I've talked about this, Chet Brewer pitched his entire career with a handicap. 
You know, right. he was missing three toes on the foot that you step. He's a right-handed pitcher, the foot that you step down in to pitch, right? And he was missing That's three right. toes on that foot. And when he was four years old, his foot was uh, severed by a trolley car, those toes, he, in Leavenworth, Kansas, at age four. And they started to amputate his leg or his foot, and his, and his dad talked him out of it, and they found a surgeon, so they ended up, you know, uh, just taking the, you know, I think the three toes, right? And uh, right. so he plays his entire career with a handicap. But, hey, if they had amputated his foot at that time, let me tell you what history would have been changed. You know, Chet Brewer goes out to California when he retires after a lengthy uh, Negro League career, and he goes out to California, and he starts a team called the Chet Brewers Rookies. And on on his team, he had people like who came from his team, Enos Cabell, uh, Bob hey. Watson, Roy oh, yeah. White, Reggie Smith, and how about Doc Ellis? All of those guys, oh, hey, and even Eddie Murray was his uh, bad boy. How about that? Oh, Eddie? Oh, <laughs> and, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, just imagine what history would have been changed just by a doctor saying, don't amputate the foot. And, you know, uh, so anyway, Chet Brewer, Des Moines, always a great town. Um, I've been there a couple of times to the hist- uh, the uh, State Historical Society uh, to speak. And uh, lots of good history out of Des Moines. Uh, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, if you're there long enough, that maybe you'll get back into the library. And, of course, Lee I, Kaiser. I doubt, you know, I'm, yeah, I, I doubt if I'll be here long enough to get in here. The way they're talking here. Our library is not going to be open any time in the next number of months, maybe the whole year again, you know, which is a shame because I would love to get in there. There's so much history here about the Negro Leagues, and it's just incredible. Yeah, Lee Kaiser, who had the, he was the owner of the uh, uh, Des Moines Demons uh, team. So Lee Kaiser is another one that, um, it has a lot of good history there. And, you know, he put in night baseball real early. And uh, night baseball, he put it in there in 1930 in, in the minor leagues. Lee Kaiser did. And uh, But you, who talks about Lee Kaiser? As a matter of fact, uh, the, the entire history of uh, night baseball, in my estimation, has not been told correctly. Uh, oh, when no. I was coming along, the first thing I knew about night baseball was uh, the Reds, Playing uh, the first night baseball game in 1935, Cincinnati's crossing the field. Uh, I think against uh, what Brooklyn? Uh, it could, yeah, I think it was Brooklyn. I think it was Brooklyn, and and that's where the night baseball conversation started when I was reading books. Right. You know, growing up, you know, uh, this is what the history was there, but there that's not the true history. Matter of fact, no. the first modern day night baseball game was played in Independence, Kansas, the House of David playing against the Independence, Kansas team. And uh, and then within a few days, the Monarchs kicked off their, their road show, and they had not permanent lights. They had uh, temporary lights that they carried on six trucks, and they, and they had a little jackknife construction, and they took night baseball to all over the country. Uh, right. and pioneered night baseball. But that's not the story I grew up hearing, so I've been happy to talk about that a little bit in the Dizzy Dean book because of Lee Kaiser and the whole connection to Des Moines. And I'm so glad you did that because, yeah, that's important. I grew up that same way thinking that 
that Cincinnati and Brooklyn game. That was the first night game. There's so much, you know, there's so much that we haven't learned that is still, you know, that's history that's there that we have to learn. But yeah, tell, you know, and it's something that I, you know, I learned so much in the, your latest book. But one thing I didn't know is you talk about uh, Des Moines, Iowa. I have played. I'll be playing after we do this interview. I'll be playing a little bit of a Julie Lee and and her boyfriends. Oh, and they sure. were a Julie big, Lee? Oh yeah. And I didn't know until I read your book that she was married to one of the guys in the one of the guys that I really liked over the years as far as learning about the Negro Leagues, Frank Duncan Jr. I didn't know they were married. I never that knew is, that. Yeah, there matter of fact, uh, there is a blues singer, her name was Mamie Smith. And yep. Mamie Smith was married to the manager of the Birmingham Black Barons, Charles Two Side West Two Sides Wesley. And so, yeah, I didn't know that. I read your book too. Yeah, I don't know if I let's see. I think that was in my photographic history. I put a picture of her and talked about it. But uh, yeah, there, there's a whole history. And uh, uh, Julia Lee, uh, oh man, I could talk about her too. Now, now, what what people don't realize, matter of fact, I'll just tell you that uh, I have a love for music too. I was a, a musician, and matter of fact, I'm looking at an album collection on my wall. Of over 800. I, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you something before you say that. I was trying to find, <laughs> I saw a picture on your one of your Twitter feeds. You had a picture of you in the group. <clears throat> and I was trying to find some music and surprise you, but I couldn't find it. I was trying <laughs> to find the group. <laughs> There's just one out there. It's called it's a Threatening Weather. Threatening Weather ah. out, of, out of Kansas City. And uh, we recorded that when I was 17 years old. And Tonight when I get off uh, the line, you know, thank goodness to the uh, pandemic here, I've been practicing the whole pandemic. So now I'm looking forward to going out and sitting in once this pandemic ends. Uh, it's given me an opportunity to to play my horn again like because I'm sitting oh, around. So I write and play the horn and and then write some more and play my trumpet. So it's been it's uh, it's been interesting. But but that knowledge of the music and those musicians and those kind of things have also served me well too. So Julia Lee um, is definitely one. And I tell you, uh, Jay McShann, Jay McShann was oh, originally yeah. out of Muskogee, Oklahoma. I knew Jay, and uh, I when I I was doing some oh, research, really? and I, yeah, and I found out Jay came from Muskogee, and I knew knew Joseph, the Monarchs third baseman, came from Muskogee too. So Jay was playing somewhere in Kansas City, so I go down and ask Jay, say, Jay, do do you know uh, New Joseph, or did you know New Joseph? And Jay said when he left Muskogee, his mom told him, when you get to Kansas City, be sure to look up New Joseph. So he definitely knew New Joseph. It was like a, a community, Man. a network. And, uh, and even in my hometown, which is Kansas City, Kansas, I probably grew up about five blocks from where Charlie Parker was born, right there in Kansas City, Kansas. Oh, man. Oh, that's, that, that's amazing. I want to ask you, you know, as far as Des Moines, I'm curious, talk to my listeners about Charlie Beverly, because he, he's mm. an important figure here. And talk about what happens during the barnstorming tour. Okay. Char- Charlie Beverly, I'll just say this. He had everything Satchel Page had except flair. Charlie Beverly would come out, 
strike out 13, 14, 15, 16, night after night after night. And But he was not colorful like Statue Page, but he was the Monarchs' great left-handed strikeout pitcher. The interesting thing is Beverly's prime was about 19 um, – it would be 1930, well, actually about 29, till about 1936. He threw his arm away, pitching, the, and the Monarchs helped wow. in that as he pitched so so often. And uh, but he was a tremendous player. So when they're playing the Dizzy Dean All Stars, I think Charlie Beverly, I think it was 14 strikeouts he had that night. But in the article. Which was wrapping up the uh, Dizzy Dean's appearance and talking about the game that was played there. They never mentioned Charlie Beverly's name once, even though he had struck out 14 people. And um, it had not it been for a box score, we would have never known what a wonderful uh, outing he had against Dizzy Dean's All Stars there in Des Moines. And that's the key thing of the, I mean, that's the major thing about the book. The fact is that there were these great performances during that brainstorming tour by the, you know, black ball players, and the media basically ignored it. You know, I did, you know, as I was reading your book again, I went through the sporting news online from that period, from September through 1934 until 35. Okay. There is no mention of the barnstorming tour that I could find. Mm-hmm. I mean, and sporting news at the time is supposed to be the Bible of baseball. Yeah, it it was the Bible, but I tell you what, that Bible had a lot to be uh, desired. <laughs> it sure did. You know, the only mentions they would have with Dizzy Dean, Dizzy and uh, Daffy Dean was about they were starting some. Uh, youth camp or something and they talked about their salary how they were trying to get a raise and all and i think there was one mention about they were going on tour after the world series but they never talk about these games that is correct and i you know yeah the, the 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 event that got the biggest national attention was at in the last game in pittsburgh uh there was a a fight between Vic, Vic oh, yeah. Harris, and an umpire. Now, that game got national attention. And so they have a black ball player who has a, a fight with an umpire, and so they make that national headlines. Not the other things that were good going on, but they take that story national, and and then they, everybody had their own pick of how they wanted to title the story, which was quite interesting as well. Right, because you know it's a in the in the media's mind it's it's a race ride because it's you know white umpire versus black player and you know and they they want to jump you know they want to talk about it and ignore what was going on what you know there was a game and what happened at the game but that That's you know true. but it's, and I just I just like the fact you know that you do show this in each city you show how the media covers stuff and it's like you were saying earlier Phil you know fake news you know Republican, Democrat newspapers, whatever you want to call them, it's no, it's no new phenomenon. It's always been like that. And when it comes to us in particular and covering us, we're just totally, like Ralph Allison, Ralph Allison said, we're invisible. We're the invisible men. That's true. We're not really and, seen. 
Yeah, and boy, those those very good points. And and for me, I know through the years, especially when I first started um, back in the '80s, really doing heavy research. If not for people like Fred Langford, Fred Langford had played in 1910. He was in his 90s, and Fred Langford probably gave me more wisdom about how to approach this topic. Uh, also, another historian by the name of Old Orwin Murray, who was out of Kansas City, Kansas, a good friend with the Rogan family, he uh, gave me a lot of wisdom of how to approach these topics. And these are still things that I use today in trying to tell this story. And so I was mentored by some pretty good people, and uh, so you know I'm thankful for that. And, you know, one thing I might also mention, too, because there's things that I've written, and and I try to point this out to people. Cite your sources. You know, uh, you I speak, Thank you. speaking all the time, you know, and they'll be talking about things, and they never cite their sources where they got it from. I tell you one that you'll hear. You'll hear uh, something like you'll hear people saying, uh, Josh Gibson, uh, he didn't break bats. He wore them out. Well, right. Jesse Williams told me that, and I put it in my Negro League Baseball book years ago. But I hear people saying it all the time. I know where they got it because they never interviewed Jesse Williams. They got it from my book, but they never cite you. you know. And you can cite people even in your public speaking as well as your written work as well. Right. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, why why not? But I and I have to say I've had so I've interviewed over the years doing shows like this for almost god twenty years now. I've had those experiences where I can tell and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings when I'm interviewing some folks, but like where are you getting your information from? Where are you know, where is this coming from? And unfortunately you have some folks out there, Phil, and you know this who want to be the experts on a certain, a certain ball player. So they'll pick an obscure Negro League ball player, and they're the expert on it, but nobody else is, you know, looking up the research, and they're just taking it at face value, whatever the person may say. And that's doing a disservice to the legacy of those players. And that's, that's why correct. I'm glad you're out here and some other folks I know who are actually doing real research not just doing, you know, haphazard, you know, research and just calling names and, as you said, just saying things, quotes that are just apocryphal. They don't even, you have no, you know, you have no basis of saying it. You know, so I'm just so, you know, I'm just so glad that you're out here doing this. And, again, listeners, uh, I'm talking to Phil S. Dixon. The name of the book is The Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime. And I want to quote something from your book from 1992, The Pictorial History. Because yeah. I had, I, I went back and looked at it. You know, and I got to tell you before I say this quote, I have purchased this book three times in my life. For some <laughs> reason, I keep, I keep giving it away. I ain't giving away this. I, you know, I came <laughs> back here, bored it, and I said, this, I ain't giving this away. But I always end up getting, you know, this is going back to me. When I get back to Asia, this is going with me. You know, I ain't, okay. I ain't, I ain't giving this one up again. But I've given it away like a number of times, but I love the book. But you have this great quote that's apropos to what's going on right now. At the beginning of the book, you say, 
Their game was played under quarantine, far from the maddening crowds that embraced professional baseball to main, in mainstream America. And it was a quarantine. Mm-hmm. A quarantine as far as, you know, a blackout of learning about, you know, our players at that time. And well, you wrote this that, in the, uh, Go ahead. And, yeah, and, and kind of when I wrote that, I was being facetious because <laughs> that's what they were telling us. But, see, what they don't tell you is that, for instance, one of the things I used to hear people say, oh, these players are so great, it's too bad nobody ever saw them. And I started to realize, you know, my grandfather went to a lot of ball games, so I guess he's a nobody who never saw them. And right. the truth of the matter is many people saw them, many because if you take a barnstorming tour, and, and by the way, the Negro National League is America's only true barnstorming league. And so, they, you know, if you have the Kansas City Monarchs, they might play the St. Louis Stars in Kansas City. But guess what? They might also play the Stars in like, like what they did in Osawatomie, Kansas. Uh, or guess what? And so... You know, so now you got two black teams playing in Osawatomie, Kansas, and it draws 2,000 people. That's 2,000 nobodies. So the game was actually seen right. by more people than they ever wanted to give it credit. And so when I wrote that, I was being facetious because that's what they were telling me, and I knew it was a lie. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's, so, all, it's all a lie. And But – but if you really look at attendance totals, you can begin to see that a lot of people – and how about this? More variety of people saw a Negro League team than a Major League team because the way they traveled and barnstormed, more of America is seeing them than, than a Major League team. So in many cases, this was the only Major League team some of these people ever saw. Right. That's the thing. It's, it's something that people, they don't, you know, they don't realize that, but that's it. That was, they were saying major leaguers when the Negro leaguers were coming in. They were major leaguers. That's the thing. Now, Phil, we're going to be wrapping this up, but what do you All want right. people to get out of your new book? I, I like them to read it and, and really begin to get an understanding of what's going on in America, American history, and actually to try to get things in the right order. Uh, Dizzy and Dean, as great as they were, there were still better pitchers in the Negro League. Satchel Page, Charlie Beverly, and people know about Satchel Page. They never hear about Charlie Beverly or Andy Cooper, who 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 actually logged more innings than Dizzy Dean when they played the Monarchs uh, in six games. So there were a lot of a lot of really good talent. And there were a lot of really good baseball games that were played outside of the major leagues. And when I say major leagues, I'm talking about National and American League, that major league. There were a lot of really good games. And unfortunately, the statistics that they're going to put out now will not include anything that happened with the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Tour, which is probably the most how can I put it? it was an outstanding interracial series, but it won't be a part of those statistics. So we, we have to continue to tell these stories, and we need to tell stories 
that make sense and stories that inspire young people right. to go out and want to play this uh, great game of baseball. And uh, so that's what I hope to achieve. And so I try to stay in my own lane. Um, sometimes I can be pretty controversial, but but you know what? I, I earned the right. I love your and, controversy. Uh, I love it. <laughs> okay. I work hard to earn the right, and I, I have never stopped researching it. I was working on some things today, uh, and it just keeps going on and on and on, and I just hope that I can do that. But just trying to blaze a trail, and one of these days, and I always look for that young guy, I'm going to walk somewhere, and I'm going to run into that young guy, Who's gonna be me for the next generation? That's the key thing. That's what that's what we're looking for. And I'm I want to ask you this. I saw this in one of your tweets. What's going on with the the book I was just uh, quoting from the pictorial history book? Did someone take the rights of it? What? Yeah, that what happened? That, you know that publisher has been basically a scandalous publisher, and so. Oh man. Um, because it's so expensive to produce a book like that now, new, uh, they try to put it in paperback, but they owe me royalties. And so I just tell people, don't buy it. Don't, don't be, and, it's, and on top of it, it's a crappy edition. And so that oh, if, but if, you, if you can get a used edition of the original one from 1992, get it. And, and that's it. what I, I, have the, I have the hardback original edition. I have that. Yeah, but that yeah, because yeah, I was wondering what was going on here, man. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, all publishers are not created equal, and you know what's interesting? You may find this a this is interesting. Uh, when I uh, finished that book originally, I finished it in 1987, and uh, it was rejected over 100 times. People said people don't want to know about the Negro Leagues. Were the letters that I got back from publishers, big time publishers? Nobody was really? interested in it. So I, I, this publisher ended up taking it, but then they sit on it for four years. It didn't come out till 1992, and it still won the Casey Award for the best baseball book in 1992. And uh, so here we are. We well, we're going on 40 years later. 92. It's, <laughs> you know. So, but it was actually done in yeah. the 80s. So, <clears throat> yeah. So. Uh, but, it, you know, it was a fun book to uh, write, and uh, at that particular time, people didn't think you could find photographs, and I, I basically proved that, proved them to be wrong on that issue. Now people are finding lots of photographs, but somebody had to do it first, and my book did that. It, and you did it. Yeah, I mean, you've done a superb job, as you always do. And I'm going to ask you this. Um, when you were getting these photographs, I know a lot of the stuff you got from some of the players, but if you were like me, and I was in the D.C. area back in the 80s, and I was trying to collect things. I would go to a lot of black memorabilia shows. And unfortunately, I would only be the only black person there. Did you go through that? Oh, trying to collect things? Yeah, I used to. Uh, that happened to me with a lot of baseball card shows. I went to baseball cards. I had that, cards. too. Yeah, during the '70s, and I'd be the only black person there. And then I set up a table, and and then uh, white collectors would come by. Now remember, I told you I had a pretty pretty nice collection, so I set up right. and I was selling my duplicates or something like that. And white collectors would come by, and they would say, "Hey, where'd you get all those cards?" And and you know, I said the same place you got yours at the store. 
And because they had never <laughs> seen a black person, they didn't know how to react to that, you know. And, and so this is part of the uh, racism and the oppression that you face when you try to go outside of the boundaries that have been right. set by this society for you. And uh, so I'm not surprised that you experienced that. And, uh, but at least you were out there, and, and that was a start. And I have to say, and I'm glad you said that, Phil, because I even get that at this moment because I've started, because of the pandemic, I've started to say, you know, I'm going to put some pictures on the uh, Historic Negro League site on Facebook. And I notice that there are a number of folks on there who will come back at me and say, they'll always ask, where did you get that from? You know, they all, I've had some people ask, you know, can you sell that? Can you do this? But I notice if a white person will post something that's rare, I don't see comments saying, where did you get that? It's always like, wow, that's a great thing you got. That's a great picture. Mm-hmm. But I get this always this challenge. And I've noticed right, that not- from some other black folks who, who will post something on that Facebook site. And so it yeah, just continues. Yeah, kind of like you're not supposed to have this information or something. Right. But, but the right. truth yeah. of the matter is, if anybody, why not you? And uh, That's so right. I always why not me? And uh, so, you know, I, I really just thank God for um, keeping me on track because, you know, there are so many things out there who, that literally can throw you off track. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I've. You know, I've seen a lot of um, misapplication. I'll just put it like this. I've seen a lot of credit go to people who didn't deserve it. It could throw you off. But the thing that I've always realized is that just do what God told you to do, and and you'll be okay. And so far, it's worked out for me. And I think, uh, you know, God willing, my best books are yet to come out. And so I think that uh, (laughs) I feel like the best is yet to come. And, uh and so um, this pandemic, I've been writing throughout the pandemic, so hopefully uh, next year um, or late this actually later this year, you will see something. I do have a, uh, a revised edition of my 1931 Homestead Graves book uh, that will be out oh, about a month from now. Oh, okay. I re- yeah, and I have a book on John Buck O'Neill that's been totally revised and, and, and updated and put into a different kind of a format which no one has done yet. So that's coming too. So those will come in 2021, but I'm pretty excited about that. But I have another book I'm writing about a major leaguer that's going to come out uh, as soon as I pitch it. I'm working on it night and day right now. So, um, Oh, man. Just, can't can't, just can't give a hint on the name. Can't say the name or anything? No. You know what? One thing I learned over the years, don't, boy, my brother oh, used to say, I know. He said, don't wake, don't wake a sleeping dog. That's right. Because so, as you, yeah, as you think it, somebody's doing of, it. Yep. Yeah, that right of time. But no one's doing this, This what I'm working on. And, and the thing is, even if they did do a book on the same guys, they're not going to write it the same way I would write it. No, that it's I not going to be thorough. Oh, I know that. You know, Based on your writings and what I know of you, it's not going to be thorough. It's going to be, you know, yeah. it's going to be halfway. So, yep. Phil, if anyone and, wants to reach you – oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, well, well, to answer your question, I do have my uh, web page, which is uh, NLB, like Negro League Baseball Alive, 
com. You can go out there and, uh, you know, a lot of people, that's where they purchase the autographed books from. Instead of getting it on Amazon, they purchase it from me, and then I send it out to them, same price as Amazon. And uh, right. I get it to them, but it's autographed. So uh, my website, and I'm going to start doing more uh, in the way of uh, putting out uh, articles uh, from that website. So I've been writing a few oh, of them. been busy with the books, so I haven't had a chance to to put as many articles as I would like. Right, but, yeah, you, you have done such a superb job over the years, and you continue to do so. And oh, I want to, you know, one thing I didn't mention, that, you know, you without you, I doubt if we would have the Negro Baseball League. I mean, museum, I'm sorry, museum. Yeah. And, and yeah, talk, you about, know, talk uh, about your your role in that real quickly. Yeah, you know, my role in that goes back to the early 80s. Uh, well, they tried to have a museum in Ash, Ash, Asheville, Kentucky. And uh, so uh, there was a guy here in Kansas City named Horace Peterson. And uh, back in, I want to say it was probably 82, 1982, I took one of these tours. I would just get in my car and just go traveling, right? So I went all right. through Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and I went through St. Louis, Indiana, and I ended up in Kentucky. And I looked at what they were doing down there, and I realized they weren't doing anything, and so, and they weren't making any progress. And I came back. I talked to Buck O'Neill. I talked to Horace Peterson. I said we could bring this thing to Kansas City. And I, at that particular time, we're still in the early '80s. I mentioned it to a. Uh, it was called the Kansas City Business Journal, and they began to talk about it. But uh, that was the beginning of that. And in 1990, it was five people who came together, uh, and we went down and incorporated the museum in 1990, and that was the birth of the Negro National League Museum. And to this day, out of those five people, I'm the only one that's being been consistently working with the museum for the entire length of time. And that, that's incredible. And that place is, is amazing. It is something. I had Bob Kendrick on this show before. Yeah, that place is something. It, is anyone also, before you go to, is anyone working with you as far as the whole, you know, we talked about earlier about the Negro League stats. Has anyone from MLB approached you as far as working with them? Uh, no, they have not. No, they have not. I think that they feel like they have their people in place. My phone has not rang one time. And now there was an effort through Society of American Baseball Researchers to put a team together. But right. Major League Baseball has already chosen who they want to work with. So uh, while they're working with those people, I'm going to continue to do the things that I do, but I will be the biggest critic of what's wrong, and I already know <laughs> what's wrong. And even today I'm reading articles. I read all the articles that come out related to the statistics. Right. And uh, I was reading, um, I, I guess, one article today I was reading, and it had a lot of misle misleading information in there. Matter of fact, it even mentioned that Gary Os uh, Ashwall was a co-founder of the Negro Leaf Museum. So I'm always finding bad information. Mm. But but part of part of the thing is, and G Gary Ashwall is part of uh, Steamheads, uh, who do. And he's been he's online. been on this show too. G Gary's a good guy. Okay. He's been on this show. Yeah, so he's one of them. He's one of the people, and but but the thing is. 
the reason why you keep having those kind of problems is because there's a lot of lazy journalists out there who don't there do go. their homework, like, just like some of the people who write the books. They don't do good journalism. So what they do is they get the low-hanging fruit, and they figure they've got everything, and they don't do their, they don't do their right scholarship. Right. And so that's why you end up writing an article and, re- and releasing it nationally through a major publication saying Gary Aswall is a co-founder of Negro Leaks Museum, and it's not even correct. That's just bad journalism. Yeah, that's a shame. And, and to think the fact that you actually work, I mean, technically, not technically, the fact that you worked for the Kansas City Royals at one point, that you actually were in Major League Baseball, unlike some of the folks who are just historians, but they're not, they haven't been a part of it, you would know more than anyone what to look for. You, you know, when I was there, uh, we're, we're talking about the 80s, right? When I was there, I had access. I was assistant director of public relations, so I, w- I had access to the clubhouse. Uh, I had access to the to the uh, booth, uh, the press booth, and all that. And basically, when everybody came to town, whether it was Phil Rizzuto or uh, Bill White, uh, Gene Baker used to come in with the Pirates out of town. Hank Bauer was a good friend of mine. Oh, yeah. He always wanted to know, oh, am I collecting that baseball dope? Uh, <laughs> Cookie Rojas used to come in. We would talk about Cuba. And all of that information that I was able to pick up from these people, man, it's it's still serving me uh, in ways unlimited. But just having that access, and even when they, when uh, you know, like the first modern, one of these, like, Negro League reunions that they have in the modern day, there had been one by A. Ray Smith in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the in the late seventies, maybe about mid seventies, but the one that uh, that started all in modern day was the one I put together with the Kansas City Monarchs in nineteen eighty. Excuse me, Kansas City Royals in nineteen eighty nine. That started the wave, and uh, I worked with Joe Gargiulo on that, uh, Joe Black, and and those guys oh, who were uh, the baseball alumni assistance program. Man, we put that thing together, and uh, so. But those are things that. People won't remember me for. Most people don't even know I ever worked in Major League Baseball, or you know, uh, you know that I had anything to do with any reunion. Sometimes I'm kind of a low-profile kind of individual, but um, all of these experiences come out in my work. It definitely does. And again, it's a shame that they're not you're not being utilized. Or you know, MLB should be. They should be like your phone should be off the hook. But, you know, every time, you know, just ringing constantly. You should be getting sure. emailed everything from them every second. I, but, you know, like you said, they want the low-hanging fruit. And, they, um, it's, you know, it's also like the um, when Hank passed. I know you saw this. They had a picture. ESPN had a picture of Jackie Robinson and Sam Jeffrey. Sam, you know, Jethro, I mean, Sam Jethro with the Boston Braves. And they – Put on the caption, Jackie Robinson and Hank Aaron. Okay. <laughs> that surprised I mean, me. I mean, it doesn't surprise me either. It's sloppy. <laughs> yep. And, and you know, if you know anything about baseball, first of all, they don't even look alike. Uh, I know. So. Well, you don't even have to know about baseball. You know about people especially. But you know the stories, how 
I've been mistaken. I know you've been mistaken for someone by somebody, and you look nothing like them. <laughs> but, be, but because we're black men, it's like we all look alike. So, okay. Right, right. You know, we, Matter, oh, man, I could tell you some great stories. We'd have to, oh, we'd I have to tell talk. You, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do that offline. Or maybe we'll do, we'll dedicate a show sometime about Mistaken right. and, and you know, one, one thing I might mention, uh, from 2014 to 2018, I did a 200-city tour, right? And right. Uh, on that tour, I drove the entire tour, and I went to 17 states. It took it took me uh, from 20, 2014 to 2018 to complete it, right? But I went to cities where the Kansas City Monarchs had played, and then when I went out east, it's right. place the Homestead Grays had played, and and things like that. And I bought these communities this unique history that they did they didn't even know it existed in their own community uh, that deal with diversity of the bringing the Kansas City Monarchs or a black baseball team to their town. People ask me, where did they stay, that kind of thing. And what's interesting is when I started in 2014, Barack Obama was president, and I could feel the tension. When I finished, Donald Trump was president, and I felt even more tension. And so a lot of times I would pull into a town, and, you know, I might speak at 7 o'clock, but, man, I've already got my gas you know, I, when I leave that town, I don't leave. I didn't go. I didn't leave the same way I came in. And I thought I said to myself, if I have to think about that now, what did these Negro leaguers have to oh, think man. about? And That's it. and it began to make me think about a whole lot of things that they began to think about. And you know, uh, as they traveled, because. You know, I could feel the tension myself, and I know they had to feel it. And of course, I was by myself. At least they had a whole team, whole team with right. them. But uh, yeah, but yeah. So I traveled, and I went to places where they probably hadn't had a black speaker in years to come to that town, and I was treated very well because people were curious. You know, right. and uh, you know, I, I was. I remember I went to. Uh, I think I was in Spring Valley, Illinois. And I was speaking there, and I wanted to go there because that was Robert Gilkerson's hometown, uh, the owner of the Gilkerson Union Giants, who did, never uh-huh. gets any, never oh, he no. didn't get the recognition that he deserves either. So I went to go there, and I was speaking there. And after the event, a white guy, he's probably about 60 years old, he came up to me and said, you know what? He said, I don't mean to insult you or anything. He said, but you got the greatest diction I ever heard. And because at the end of my speeches, I always do poetry, right? It's poetry. I write right. poetry, that kind of thing. And so, you know, and I, I kind of thought to myself, I wonder if he's ever listened to a Barack Obama press conference. Ooh. He's a greater speaker than me. <laughs> so, so, and he was president at the time. But, you know, I try to carry my own, but I met so many people and I met a lot of people who follow me today, uh, people who who learn things. Had I not come there, they never would have heard that. And uh, and and you know, I want. Can I mention one more thing? Oh sure, take your time. Go ahead. And in in some of these small towns I would go to, there would be inter, there would be children, and a lot of times their grandparents. They would be multiracial children, right? 
and their grandparents a lot of time would bring them to hear me speak because there was no black person who was in that town that they could take their mixed child, wow. their mixed grandchild, to go to school. And, and, and in many towns, I experienced that. Uh, little boys and little girls, they would bring them, and man, you know, and I kind of picked up on what was going on, and and they needed to see me there because they could show yeah. their grandkids, here's somebody you can be like, you know. Man. And so uh, it was it was an important tour. That's amazing. Phil, I got to get you back on here again numerous times. You know, I just All want right. to I thank you for taking the time, man. I hope we can meet in person eventually. I don't, you know, I, if I'm still in the country here, but no, we, we're going to stay in touch no matter what. So I just want to thank you again, Phil. And one more time, tell people where they can reach you. They just tuned in. Well, and, and by the way, thank you, Greg, for all that you're doing and, and bringing recognition to this topic. Certainly appreciate that, and it was, it was a joy to talk to you today. And they can uh, go to my website, my webpage, NLB, like Negro League Baseball Alive, A-L-I-V-E, NLBalive.com, and you can follow me there. And uh, I will be posting a little bit more as I get through revising some of these projects that I'm on. So, But I do thank you for having me on tonight. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I've already shared it on my social media, so hopefully some people will get a chance to hear it, and I will share it to my Twitter uh, as soon as I can. All right, and thank you again, Phil. And I'm going to play as you leave. I'm going to play some Julie Lee, the spinach song. And the spinach ain't about vegetables. (laughs) So, again, you just take care, Phil. I'll be talking to you later. Thank you so much. You be safe. Take care. All right, you too. Have a good evening. You too. And again, that was Phil X. Dixon, and the great, I mean, all his stuff is great. And the latest book is The Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime is on Roland and Littlefield Press. Go get I recommend it highly. It's not just a baseball book. It's a history book. This man is a legendary historian. I just hope, you know, just honored to have him on today. We'll be talking to him again. And I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to play right now Julie Lee and her boyfriends, the Spinach song. It ain't got nothing to do with vegetables or Popeyes. So let's say that on the Root and Root Show. Spinach has vitamin A, B, and D. But spinach never appealed to me. But one day while having dinner with a guy, I decided to give it a try. I didn't like it the first time. It was so new to me. I didn't like it the first time. I was so young, you see. I used to run away from the stuff, but now somehow I can't get enough. I didn't like it the first time. Oh, how it grew on me. I didn't like it the first time I had it on a date Although the first was the worst time Right now I think it's great Somehow it's always hitting the spot 
especially when they bring it in hot. I didn't like it the first time, but oh, how it grew on me.
segment of the Root and Root Show, or as my grandfather used to call it, T, but that was uh, Ella Fitzgerald in, with the Chick Webb Orchestra, and that was When I Get Low, I Get High, and before that, we did uh, Snuff Smith in the Onyx Club, and Snuff Smith, he was a, a violin player, and he's playing a the violin there, and my, uh, once again, my grandfather taught me about him. He was, I think, the first jazz violinist, and that was Here Comes the Man with the Jive. And we started to set off with uh, Julie Lee and her boyfriend. And that one was the spinach song on the Root and Root Show. And hope you enjoyed that. And again, I'm just happy and honored just to have today on the program the great, the one and only Phil S. Dixon, author of so many books, the latest being Dizzy and Daffy, Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race Media in America's National Pastime. It's on the Rolling in Littlefield Press. Please go get that book. Please get it. And I just want to thank everyone who's tuned in today. I want to say hi to uh, the folks I know that are listening in because I see them on Facebook. I, Bob and Ted and so many. 
No, not Bob Kidd, Allison. No, that's that's a movie. But I want to say hi to those folks and all the other folks that are listening in. And all, again, all my friends around the world, especially everyone in Thailand that's tuning in. I'll be back there soon. But again, I got to say, as I always do when I conclude these shows during this pandemic, if you're able to help someone in your community, especially a senior, someone, um, and it doesn't have to be just in America, because like I said, there are people all over the world that listen to this program. If you could ask them if they need help, if they need anything from getting groceries to shoveling snow, raking leaves, washing down their car, whatever they you can do for them, but keeping that social distance and wearing a mask, if you can do that, that'll be great. If you also, if you can help a youth in your community, because a lot of children around the world are not going to school now, if you're able to donate or buy a laptop, tablet, computer for a young person in the community and help them or even buy, you know, um, online, you know, some service form so they can actually use that computer, that laptop, that tablet, if you can get a service to do it for them, online a web service, that'll be great. But we got to help each other this time and just pitch in together and help each other because we're all in this. You can, you know, no matter where you are and what you are, we're all in this together. Everyone is caught up in this pandemic and this whole COVID-19 thing, which is now COVID-20, is getting, you know, has affected everyone around the world. If you don't think that, I don't know where you are right now. But, again, just help who you can, where you can, and just be safe and go in love and go in peace. And again, this is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show. And if you got any comments, just look online. Uh, look at Facebook at Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rasheed, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. I always read my messages and I love the comments because that helps me as far as producing shows and getting information that I believe that people need that they don't hear anywhere else. So, again, this is Greg Rasheed because a lot of this information, I got to tell you, a lot of sites are being cut. I just want to let you that as long as I can have this voice and keep on doing this before they cut blog talk and no telling what, I'm going to keep doing these shows and having great guests like Phil S. Dixon. So, again, Going love and going keep peace. This is Greg Rasheed. We'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. And remember, spread the knowledge, share the power. <laughs>